Udhang Dhammang Sankhang Namasam. It seems not, not really quite a few Buddhist meditators who've been practicing for a long time still complain about the fact that they seem to not be able to stop thinking. Making a lot of effort and have a sincere aspiration and, and yet, yeah, why can't I stop thinking? And, and it's an understandable and important question because compulsive thinking can be very painful. And so why is it? Why is it that people who have heard lots of teachings, read lots of teachings, maybe been on lots of retreats, put lots of effort, are still caught in compulsively thinking. So this question, uh, it's worth asking, however I would also say that it's worth taking care that we ask the question in a very considered way, not in an overly judgmental way. Oh, I should have stopped thinking. I, I should be. We can be very self-critical, for sure. And that's not going to help. When I think about this question, what comes to my mind is it's the difference between whether we're dealing with the smoke or whether we're dealing with the fire. The smoke, that's the thinking. That's a symptom of something prior, which I would suggest strongly is the fire or the unreceived, unmet activity in the heart, the feeling dimension. We can have a lot of information and ideas about how to deal with a problem like ill will, for instance. Although the ideas may be very good, does just thinking about them, does just thinking about ill will really deal with the issue? Is, is the pain, is the problem, is the issue in our heads? Do we feel anything in our heads anyway? We think in our heads about what we feel in our bodies. We think in our heads what we feel in our hearts, in our guts, like fear. You, you have some unreasonable fear over something and you know, part of you knows it's irrational and, and you've read in the scriptures the example of somebody walking along and terrified because they think they see a snake and it turns out it's only a piece of rope and on the path and there's no reason to be afraid. Does that information, does that idea really release us 
from the fear, or does the fact that we consider our ill will, our anger, our rage, our indignation, our hatred, does the idea that it's inappropriate or irrational or unreasonable or unwarranted, does that really deal with the issue? I would suggest very strongly <laughs> that it doesn't, and there's a reason for that. And we, we've been educated and we've learned to identify with our thinking mind the activity in our heads. And sadly, regrettably, in many cases, become chronically disconnected from other aspects of our being. I mean, even thinking about feeling is not feeling feeling. We're so identified in our thinking that we hear a talk like this and the teacher's talking about feeling what you feel, meet yourself on the heart level. And we probably think, or we could think, that we understand this. But if we really understand it, then it makes a difference. And if we don't understand it, then we stay stuck with the problem. So I would suggest this is the reason why so many meditators, despite all the good effort that they're making, are still caught up in compulsive thinking. It's the smoke, it's what happens when we don't meet ourselves on the feeling level. When we don't feel what we feel, the energy goes up out of our hearts into our heads and goes round and round and round. We have stories, there are stories going around there. And maybe we start talking about it until the energy is spent. And they, oh, Okay, feel better. We only feel better because we spent the energy. We didn't really deal with it. We didn't really, really understand what was going on. If we do really understand and we truly meet ourselves when we're disrupted in our hearts, then something shifts. It doesn't have to go up in the head and turn into endless stories and be endlessly talking about it and trying to solve this problem. It was never a problem anyway. It was just painful feeling, unmet. Recently, I had the an experience of dealing with strong desire. A few days ago, I broke my glasses and it was very disappointing. I had to use an old pair of glasses that meant I couldn't see very well. Well, one way or another, I ended up going to the optician and they weren't sure they could fix them anyway. And so we said, okay, we had a new set of glasses. Oh, well, that's fun. And for some reason, this time, I actually paid much more attention to the process. I, I realized I've never been very happy with my glasses anyway. And when I stop and think about it, because I was in too much of a hurry, I was partly I was embarrassed to be standing in the optician shop there with all these people around, looking at myself in the mirror to see what I look like. And so I just rushed the process, and and the the focal part of the very focal lenses wasn't very good. And so this time, for whatever reason, I didn't seem to mind so much, and I took along a fellow monk and tried on various different frames and. Do I look totally ridiculous in these glasses? And, and the manager came down and said, oh, you look frightening in those ones. And, and then the assistant came and she tried to sell me a pair of designer frames. And 
anyway, eventually we settled on some frames and an expanded focal area, so it should be able to read better. And well, that's very satisfying. I really look forward to having my new glasses. Well, that was good. And then I came back, and the next thing I noticed, I want my glasses now. Why well, can't I have my glasses now? <laughs> and it was embarrassing to just see this. I want my glasses now. And I couldn't have them. I've got to wait for a week or maybe two weeks. Well, that's tedious. And there's this desire disturbing me in my cootie, sitting there in my cootie, being disturbed by wanting. So what do you do with it? Push it into unawareness. Oh, I shouldn't be wanting my new glasses. I should be a patient Buddhist monk. I shouldn't be having these feelings. Does that work? Go up into the head and start running around with stories. Can I do this? Can I do that? Well, there is another alternative, and that is to fully want. To just, it feels a bit daring. So, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to really allow myself to fully want my glasses right now? Yes, you are allowed to. In fact, that's what you're supposed to be doing. This is what's going on. You're wanting. So, fully want. Not just up in your head thinking about wanting, but really in open-hearted awareness in your body, feeling, wanting, now. I don't want to have to wait. I want them now. Don't worry about how ridiculous that is. Just the energy to really meet it. And really meeting it on that occasion made a difference. Big deal if I have to wait when I get my glasses. Certainly not the end of the world. I have to wait a few days before I get my new glasses. However, as an example of the difference it makes to come out of your head and judging how you think you should be feeling or how, where you think you should be at in your practice, coming out of that and coming down into the heart and really feeling what you feel in open-hearted awareness can make a big difference. So once again, just having ideas about this is not enough. Recently, I've become aware of a great variety of fossiferous lifestyle gurus on the internet with all sorts of sophisticated ideas about why the world is in such a mess, why we are all in such a mess, and what's going to happen, and how to sort it out, and very intelligent, impressive analyses of the problem. Mm. However, listening to some of it, as impressive as the ideas are, I, I must say I'm not convinced that they leave the secure place in their heads where they feel confident talking about what the problem is and really, really coming down to feeling or encouraging their listeners or watchers to make that effort to come down out of their heads and to deal with the fire rather than the smoke. Waving the smoke around, it's not enough. Again, some people can be putting a great deal of effort into meditating. Very impressive, committed effort. However, if they haven't learnt, if they haven't heard the message of whole body-mind awareness, whole being awareness, if this hasn't occurred to them, then there's a, regrettably a very real risk that they will still be running around in their heads listening to teachings and thinking and 
talking about what we could or should be doing about the situation. Well, thankfully we do have these teachings and most of us be aware of the Buddhist teachings, for instance, on the Satipatthana Sutta, the setting up of the foundations for mindfulness. This very precise instruction, starting with, by the way, the body, Kayanusati, establishing a foundation of disciplined attention in the body. If you read the discourse, I expect you'll get the message that merely thinking about these aspects of experience is not enough. Encouraged to let go of the thinking, in fact, to discipline attention enough so as to be able to quietly, or Ajahn Chah referred to as Pichyaranayakramsamok, to contemplate in stillness or in silence. In the beginning, we Pichyarana or contemplate with coarse level of thinking, yes, that's how we start. We don't demonize thinking. Thinking is a great resource, a great asset. However, as we progress, we need to to contemplate in stillness. And, and that's, I think, also accurately could be translated as a feeling investigation. We use the thinking to direct our attention towards feeling what we feel. And also in the, that Satipatthana Sutta, the, the, Jitta Nusati, or what I think of as awareness of awareness itself. What quality of awareness are we working out of? Mm. Is it expanded or is it contracted? So this kind of exercise is requiring an effort that's much more than just getting information out of books or speculating or proliferating. It isn't necessarily easy. If it was easy, obviously more people would be doing it and finding the benefit for themselves. And in fact, uh, for educated people, it's really quite difficult. And we, we learned at a very early age to develop habits of denial. All of us, as soon as you're born, you, life is difficult on various levels. You don't get what you want, you get what you don't want, and so on. And so on. How do we deal with pain? Well, if we have really wise, skillful, compassionate carers around us, teaching us, then maybe we do learn how to live life with a quality of awareness whereby we're not just judging it and how it should or shouldn't be. We're taught by way of example and that sometimes life is wonderful and we enjoy it. However, don't get lost in it because it's going to change. Sometimes life is extremely difficult, sometimes arduous, sometimes tedious, sometimes horrendous for some people. The point is, don't get lost in it. If we have the good fortune of having such wise companions in early stage of life, maybe we don't build up the big backlog of denied life that most of us, in fact, do. Most of us, by about the age of seven, eight, nine, ten, have already developed an ability to deny what we're feeling. If you're a boy and you learn how to not cry, I am not feeling upset because my friend rejected me. Or in some situations, it's not safe to feel aversion. You easily get judged 
by people who feel threatened by intense energy. You know, children ideally learn to experience their intensity and develop a responsible relationship with it. However, if those around us feel threatened by intense emotions and they judge us for it and they shame us for it and we learn to, by way of mental manipulation, pretend we're not feeling. We learn to read books and, and then we go lost in what we lost in our heads and the stories that we're creating in our heads. And it can feel wonderful because what? Because we're not feeling the pain of life. It's a survival strategy for a lot of people. A lot of children lose themselves in books because the people around them who would ideally be caring for them are not there for them. So by the age seven, eight, nine, ten, most of us these days have already learnt to develop serious habits of denial and manipulation. And, and instead of feeling what we feel, instead of feeling sad, feeling aversion, feeling disappointed, we push it into unawareness and we escape up into our heads. And little by little it becomes our identity. That's, that is I. I am as good as I can think. I am as clever as I can think. And mm, Once again, not to demonize thinking, conceptual intelligence definitely has its place when it comes to manipulating worldly conditions. However, when it comes to really meeting ourselves on the feeling level, does it work? Does it really work? Right? If somebody who, for instance, you count as a good friend happens to say something that you feel hurt by, it triggers hurt, and then your mind spins off into this storytelling in your head about, how could they say that? How dare they say that? I'm, that's, I'm just not going to put up with it. I'm going to tell them. We've got all sorts of stories going on in their head and we can't sleep at night. And, and then we start packing our bags and getting ready to leave because we just kind of, because of what? Was it really that bad what happened? Was it really that bad? Or is it in fact what we're meeting is the backlog that we've created early on in life? Even, even by the age of 10 or 12, certainly by the age of 20, most of us these days have a big backlog of denied life. And when some small thing happens, we don't just have a natural, understandable reaction of aversion, like if somebody is a bit insensitive to us and, or crosses a boundary and, and we feel a natural, understandable sense of aversion, saying, no, that's not okay. If that's all we have, it'll be all right. However, that's not all we have often, it turns into rage and it just goes on and on and on and we could ruin a very good friendship. We could run away. That happens. Because of what? Because of the fire. We don't know how to meet the fire in the heart, in the belly. We're so identified in our heads. We're so habituated to denying where we're at that we just think that telling stories is enough. This I that is identified in a level of conceptual intelligence is overly impressed with him or herself. And the fact is that actually I can sort out all sorts of problems. I am quite clever at doing this or that. When it comes to really meeting ourselves on the level of deep disappointment, 
where sooner or later all of us are going to experience, all of us feel disappointed at some stage in life. If we've pushed disappointment into unawareness and we don't know how to feel it freely, then when we're under pressure, or for instance maybe you go on a meditation retreat, or you get sick and lose energy, so our ability to control things is pushed beyond what we can handle. And then there's a blow-up, there's a flare-up. What is it? What is that blow-up? It's denied energy. It's denied life. Children don't have that. Yeah, children get in moods and create a scene, and then they get over it. The next thing you know, they're playing as if nothing happened. As adults, unfortunately, if we haven't trained ourselves properly, if we don't have true teachings, if we don't learn about true principles, then what happens is we use our capacity to manipulate conditions to deny what we're really feeling. Even small moments of aversion, if we've been shamed at an early stage of life, we can push them into unawareness and little by little they accumulate. Small moments of, of fear. If we didn't feel the right sort of support as we grew up, then we learn to push fear into unawareness. Until then, that energy gets distorted. When energy gets denied, when emotions are pushed into unawareness, they get distorted. And then they express themselves in ways that we don't know how to handle. Distorted ill will, for instance, can manifest as self-harming. That's, that's, not, that's not suitable. Or denied fear, small moments of fear pushed away over and over again. Moment they manifest as intense anxiety. Like, for instance, if you have a, an examination, a test, you're going for your driver's license test, maybe, and you've been practicing for months, <laughs> if not years, and you've learned all the code and, and you've done all the work. However, when it comes to the test, you get taken over by anxiety. What's that all about? It's not a justified fear, it's an irrational fear. We need to be able to understand where it's coming from. It's not happening to us because the world is unkind and cruel to us. This is what often happens when we don't really have the way of framing the experience so that we can untangle these knots that we get ourselves into. And we don't have a way of dealing with it, then those, that energy goes up and here the next thing was these stories going on about who's to blame. And blaming others for our suffering instead of developing a free feeling, open-hearted awareness. To meet ourselves. And there's no question that it can feel challenging. And this is often what happens when people go on meditation retreats. They, they're assailed by all sorts of irrational, unreasonable feelings and perceptions. And it's like awareness is like it's like an iceberg. We only see a small part of it. There's only a small part of our field of awareness that we're conscious of, and there's a lot that's below the surface that we're not conscious of. And when we're under pressure, life circumstances, and, or on meditation retreat, we, and then 
this stuff comes to the surface and then we have to deal with it. Well, if we have this way of understanding, then, then we can greet it, then we can meet it. Yeah. Yes, it can feel threatening, so this is actually, I need to see this. If I don't see this now, then as I get older, it's going to get more difficult to deal with. And sadly, this is often what does happen. As people get older, they get more grumpy, more miserable, and more medicated. And then die on heavy medication because this big backlog of denied life, denied pain. So rather than if we hear this teaching and, and we're encouraged, feel encouraged to deal with it, Let's be careful that we don't get overly enthusiastic and, and zealous in and, and trying to deal with whatever it is that we've pushed into unawareness because that's not going to help either. Um, and what the Buddha encouraged was humility, the humility to acknowledge our limitations, the humility to acknowledge that often we don't know what we're dealing with the humility to dare, the humility to dare to go into the unknown. Because if a spiritual life is about anything, it's about discovering something new. And when we go into the unknown, it can be frightening. If when we start to register this fear and it feels like it's too much and we feel afraid of being overwhelmed, it's time to slow down time to uh, acknowledge that it's quite possible that we have generated a backlog of denied life and we're going to have to patiently bear with it for a while. And that's also uh, humility and patience. And sometimes when we come across a real challenging number, something really whacks us and Part of us wants to just deal with it, just get over it, just sort it out, understand it, get back to normal again. And despite all our efforts, that doesn't happen. Well, the Buddha's recommendation is, is quite different. And going for refuge to Dhamma is going for refuge to reality, to actuality, to accepting that we don't see the actual causes of the suffering. We don't see them yet. We might have read the theory, we might have read the books, we might have heard lots of Dhamma talks about the causes of suffering. However, we haven't really seen it, we haven't really felt it, we haven't really known it for ourselves. And so then the approach is a much more gentle one. Yes, it needs resilience, for sure, it needs strength. It also needs great humility and great patience. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.